Yeah, so today we are covering probably one of the most infamous episodes with all of the Bible. Both Christian and not here today are probably familiar with this old tale of the first recorded ever homicide. That's what we have. But the more I sat with this story, even just those five verses that I read, the more I think that many, Christians or not, that many don't consider God or God's part enough within this narrative. Meaning, to read this with today's standards, with Los Angeles culture in mind, then these verses we just read probably feel more like fingernails to concrete. Because there is something seemingly upsetting about these verses and about God. That being, is God unfair? You see, to filter Genesis chapter 4 through the lens of how current society defines fair treatment, equal pay, equal role, equal marriage rights, so on and so forth, then it's easy to read this and consider that God is showing partiality towards contemptible or commendable figures like Cain and Abel. Stephen King wrote an original screenplay about a man whose life is sort of kind of like this, unfair and unkind, and there's this intense, relevant moment in the screenplay that goes like this. When his life was ruined, his family killed, his farm destroyed, he knelt down on the ground and yelled up to the heavens, why God, why me? And the thundering voice of God answered him, there's just something about you that pisses me off. Is this what we just read in Cain and Abel's story? You see, if we're honest, many of us get caught up in sort of the bear trap of thinking using cosmic phrases and theological implications like, well, this is the hand I was dealt. Or we use phrases like, I got the short end of the stick. Intrinsically thinking that God likes them more than he likes me. So then, many throughout history in the book of Genesis and still today in this room squirm and they shout, where is the God of balance? and equity that we long for. Where is this God? And since we're in a series on faith, how could we possibly trust or believe or put our faith in an unfair God? The book of Genesis tells us how. So if you're new to the Bible, though, uh, just know this, that, that Genesis has a very special place within the Bible. The word Genesis, as many of us know, means the words in the beginning, but its actual word is where we get our words, gene or genetics. This is important to the rest of the Bible because that means God, this life, ourselves, sin, have their genetics in this book open before you. Everything grows a certain way from the genetic Genesis pool, including faith and its interactions with God. And friends, our verses today are so arresting when we start to actually unpack them. They're so arresting. I am so confident in God's word that some of us, I believe, will stop what we're doing today, and I hope some of us today will actually start to do something. These are incredible, incredible verses, and if we take them serious enough, they will change the way we live forever. And so how will the first homicide increase our faith and inspire us today? Easy. Write this down in your journals. You ready? Maddie, you ready? Write this down. How? Fatty meats. With fatty meat. Mmm. Nick, you ready? Fatty meats. What does it have to do with this narrative? Why does he mention Hebrews chapter 11? Why does it mention Abel? What does worship look like? What does God want from us? Is God unfair? To answer all of that, 
we have to know and understand fatty meats. <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying it like this, but it sounds better. Firstborn fatty meat. Let's see this, how it plays out. Now, for a moment, I just wanted to put ourselves in this narrative. Slow us down, and I want us to put ourselves there, and I want us to, to smell the soil. I want us to feel the heat of the day, and I want us to stand before a shepherd, Abel, and I want us to stand before Cain, a farmer, a gardener. They're both bringing an offering. They're both doing God's will. They're both seeking God, and they're both bringing their produce. And then, verse 3, one more time, and Cain brought an offering to the Lord, the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. What are we missing? What in the world are we missing other than it looks like God plays favorites? I mean, you could say that God just hates vegans, right? Like God hates vegetarians. That's easy to say, and that's an easy one, and that makes sense. <laughs> Joking. <laughs> Don't go in your Prius and go home. Like, but just stay. Listen to me. <laughs> was it because God, oh, excuse me, Cain's wasn't a blood sacrifice, and only blood sacrifices can atone for sin? We've heard that in every single stinking chapter of the book of Hebrews. So it seems Cain approached God with nothing blood-like to cover his guilt or sin, Right? Wrong. Wrong. Remember, the timing of this is everything. The sacrificial laws given for atonement had not yet happened. But the word sacrifice, just remove that. It's not even mentioned here. It's not even mentioned. Plus, if you look at other parts of the Old Testament, specifically the book of Leviticus, it clearly authorizes grain offerings. These brothers were bringing to God what's called an offering. An offering. That is a unsolicited devotion, thanks, tribute, worship. That's what that means. Professor Victor Hamilton says it like this. There seems to be no obvious distinction between the two offerings. A fruit or vegetable offering is neither superior nor inferior to an animal offering. There is no obvious distinction that we can see, but God sees it. See in verse four, that word regard, underline it, circle it, draw a little dainty doodle around it because that means to gaze intently. God is gazing, God is staring, God is peering into what we cannot see. So then what Genesis four will not tell us, Hebrews 11.4 will. Anybody have those like high school textbooks where it had all the answers in the back for like just the odd questions? Remember that? So I always knew half of my homework was always, I always got 50%. Because I just went back and did that. Anybody remember those textbooks? Who had one of those? Yeah, God bless those. And you always had to like show work and I just like did a bunch of stuff and erased it so it looked like I worked really hard. Anyway, that's what we have to do. The answer key for us is Hebrews 11.4. We have to go to the back of the book, okay? So Hebrews 11.4, where it talks about Abel, it says this. By faith. Abel offered to God, God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith, by faith, by faith, those two little words pivot this entire story and our entire understanding today. And the source of God's gaze is on that exact pivot. 
Be mindful, collective church, as we go through Hebrews chapter 11, what you're gonna see mostly every time is the words by faith, a name is mentioned, and then what they accomplish through faith. And that author, who we call the stranger in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, does it over and over. He's trying to carve it into yours, into my brain, like a really annoying cat food commercial, like a jingle. He wants it there, he wants it there, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. He's trying to make sure we understand. And God accepted Abel's purely and only on the basis of faith. Okay, if you remember what we defined faith like as last week, it's this. Faith is warranted certainty in God alone. Go get that tattooed on your face. Like that's a good definition. Faith is warranted certainty in God alone. But if I were to stop there, some of us would go, well, Casey, you're being a dum-dum. Because clearly Cain is doing that. Cain believes. Cain is present. Cain made an effort. Cain showed up. What's the diff? Genesis 4, 4, one more time. And Abel also brought to the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. (laughs) Here it is. Faith is a warranted certainty It clings to the unseen, that being the future promises of God, and it actualizes it into the present. That's what Hebrews 11.1 means when it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen. Let me flesh this out. Does anybody here a shepherd? Has anybody here been a shepherd? And I don't mean like an extra one time in some Jesus movie or whatever. Has anybody, no, nobody has any experience in shepherding? Okay. Cool. I can embellish if I want. A shepherd, by risking his future and offering some of his breeding stock, is a certainty for his future legacy, food, finances, vocation, family, and reputation. So then, what Abel should inspire all of us to do is that faith in God furnishes sufficient conviction so that a man or woman can bank their livelihood on him. This is what should inspire us. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you to avoid a Christianity where all it asks of you is to believe in God. Avoid that. It ain't real. Hear me out. That is a less than full real living faith. True, true, true Christianity asks for you to bet your entire life on God, like Abel did. We read the quote last week that if faith does not cost us everything, it is nothing. See, I grew up on a farm in Oregon, and when you're raising livestock and you're breeding them, you would be lucky, lucky to get one, maybe two livestock newborn birth within a one to two to three year span. You would be lucky. Abel here gives up the firstborn. That's faith. Abel gives out of his capital and Cain gives out of his income. Abel schedules his life around God. Cain schedules God around his life. Now, I don't know any other ways to say it, so I had to do it in very, very simple C.S. Fritz terms, which is he gives God like the chip with the most cheese on it out of the nacho plate. Like he gives God, like he turns in a hot day, his AC vent towards God. Like Abel gives God the window seat on the plane. Like I don't know how many other ways to say it, To make it really, really practical, by Abel giving his firstlings to God, is as as if Abel wrote a check to God first rather than paying his bills. 
Cain pays all of his bills, and then he writes the check to God. That is what firstlings, firstborn, fatty portions means. A warranted certainty offers their level of best, period. What might that be for you? If you don't know what that is for you, I have a very uh, simple self-diagnostic measurement tool that you could do right now. We're going to do this. Whenever the first thing to you is within an opportunity of time, talent, or treasure, that exposes what your faith is set upon. So if you get a raise and you're like, yes! Oh, I cannot wait to do that. Rather than going, maybe I got this raise to give it back to the Lord. Whatever it could possibly be. Or when our paychecks come going, I got to make sure that I pay off my movie pass. I got to make sure I pay off that first. Even though they're sinking, I got to pay that off. And I pay off all these bills and then I'll get to God. The first thing you do in an opportunity of time, talent, and treasure exposes what your faith is set upon. So again, I'm going to beat this like a drum, but if money troubles, troubles, if generosity goes first, there you go. In times of busyness, if service to one another, the church goes first, there you go. Some here will not like any of this. Some here will not like this type of God or this type of Lord, a God of Genesis 4 with no preconditions or no compromise and a God of costly, costly faith. And if that is you, then I will venture to say that your offering, and hear me, reflects that. Meaning our gifts and our tributes or our offerings reveal our estimate of the one to whom we offer. G. Campbell Morgan will help flesh this out in this quote. He says, sacrilege is centered in offering God something which costs nothing because you think God is worth nothing. Both Cain and Abel offered an amount equal to what God was worth to them. We see the value of Cain, excuse me, we see the value of God to Cain and we see the value of God to Abel as clear as day. What is the value of God to you? I I don't know. It's reflected in your faith and worship. And this is what worship is. It's, the, it's this representative act of valuing the living God. Now, I don't know about you, but I, when I sat with this this week, it just felt like there was an elephant standing on my chest. It was heavy. This is intense. It's hard to breathe. It feels like a gut punch because it's raw and it has real implications on our everyday life. This demands us to rethink and reorient it and revalue time, talent, and treasure. Collective church, there is a connection so severe to God of internal attitudes and external actions that if one does not match the other, God will reject it completely. God wants his people and Cain and Abel and you and I to know if we don't give him the best of our level, by faith, then he says, don't give it all. Apparently, God will not just take anything, which I think for many of us believe the Christian God has become this sort of like crazy ex-girlfriend. Oh, I'll just take anything. Call me, just leave a voicemail, please. Or ex-boyfriend, I'm not, you know, you know what I'm saying. There's crazy ex-boyfriends. I think we've sort of formed God into this, like you will bend to my will. 
I want to stress this issue more, but I have to leave Genesis to do so. Another Old Testament book, Amos. Just sit with this as an individual, but especially us as a church. I would love to teach this book, Amos. It's so powerful. It's so heavy. It's so real. But let me just read these verses to you. I think you'll get where I'm going. This is God talking. Look how he starts off. Real warm, cheery stuff. I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fat and animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Another one, another, another Old Testament book of Malachi. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God would rather shut temple doors. God would rather shut collective church doors and have us close up shop than to have us, people, them, keep singing, keep signing checks, keep serving, keep smiling, keep producing substance over sincerity. God looks at that and he goes, I despise it. I hate it. Only one of you would just shut your doors and knock this crap off. This is not how we are to operate or think. That at least I showed up. Or at least I put makeup on. Or does God have any idea how busy I am? Let this crash into you, collective church. God is saying to us right now, I would rather you not show up on Sundays at all than to give me substance over sincerity. Please stop your financial giving. Please stop your serving. Please stop coming on Sundays. Please stop singing if sincerity is removed. God goes, I don't like it. Which is unbelievably beautiful and unbelievably free. That should encourage us because today is not supposed to be a downer. We're supposed to see the God of incredible beauty, incredible excellence, and realize then and only then he is not after our things, after our hard work, or after our merit. He is after our hearts and he's after our warranted certainty. Again, I know this is intense, but for Cain, he realizes it and it is like a hot coal that is put inside of his chest. Other translations, when it's talking about Cain, it says it burned him exceedingly. There is smoke coming out of his nostrils. He is fuming and there is a fury inside of him. Look at this. By God rejecting Cain, it woke him up spiritually. Look at verse six. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Now you have to forgive me because I know today is supposed to be way more about Abel, but you cannot talk about Abel without talking about Cain. Like you cannot talk about Abbott Costello or like Tim Burton and Johnny Depp. Like you have to talk about them together. And he looks at him and he goes, why are you so angry? If you don't know this about God, but just know if God ever asks you a question, it is not for him to come and go, oh, that's the answer. Thanks, Billy. Like that's not what he's doing. If God ever asks us a question, it is to get you, it is to get me to understand his, or excuse me, understand our hearts and its motives. He's trying to bring us along for our benefit, not his. Because there are a thousand other questions God could be asking Cain right now. One of them being, what are you doing? Another question to Cain could be, do you know who I am? 
Another thing God could have said to Cain is, wake up, buck, wake up, silly. I have to make it a question. What, what are you doing? Uh, we'll go with that one. But he doesn't do that. He says to Cain, I see that you're depressed, which is actually the Hebrew expression here. I see that you're downcast. I see that you're bothered. And I see that you're depressed. And God walks in calmly, not angrily, counseling and pursuing a depressed man. It's powerful how our God operates when people are at their lowest moments. This should remind us of Genesis chapter three with his parents. And then pay close attention to this. He gives them hands down to me, the most creepy, terrifying, terrifying warning in like all of the Bible. Verse seven says, if you do well, you will not be accepted. Just so you know, that's not work harder. That's not Cain, you, you step it up. That's Cain, you can, you can fix this. That's Cain, you can do this. That's Cain, make it right. That's what he's telling Cain. You, if you do well, you have a chance to respond to this, Cain. And then here comes the terrifying warning. <laughs> and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must, you must, you must rule over it. That's a creep nation right there. That is creepy. Like God has been watching so much National Geographic channels, right? It's fascinating because God is describing sin here and he compares it to a crouching predator. Cain, a coiled tiger is outside of your door. A hungry wolf is outside of your window. A lurking lion is behind you. Some Eastern religions believe God is describing a certain demon. They believe this is a certain demon which crouches outside of our doorways. I'm not saying that's what it is, but that's that's creepy. (laughs) But God wants Cain to be exposed that if, if you commit a sin, it is not over with. He's trying to waken him up to sin. He's not just saying lions eat once and then they're done with. He's trying to tell him this is more than a simple action. You are dealing with a force. A sin is a power, which is why theological terminology that we can do here in our church or me from the pulpit is only goes so far. I can only go so far by saying sin is, is going against God or missing the mark or violating God's norms. Like those sound bad, but they do not capture the essence of sin's unbelievably radical darkness. Hence, sin, the enemy would prefer that we speak of it in such technical terms. Sin, the enemy, love that. Therefore, all of the saying is, all of this to say is, is, sin is far more powerful than we can ever imagine it to be. So if you think sin is like, oh, it's like 50%, no, 100. It is darker, it is scarier, and it is heavier than we have ever believed. Why? Because sin hides itself in the high grass. Sin hides itself. New York pastor Tim Keller says this, the things that can most destroy you are the things you think are not that bad. The sins we should be most concerned with collective church are the ones we don't take serious enough. The ones which are masking themselves to be something else. You see, the tiger wants the, the, the gazelle to think, I'm not here, or I'm dead, or I'm unable. 
How would that play out in our life? Some really quick examples could be, I'm not a workaholic, I'm just productive. Or, I don't overcharge my credit card, I'm just enjoying life. I'm not a glutton, I'm just a foodie. (laughs) I'm not legalistic, I'm obedient. I'm not cynical, I'm astute. I'm not lazy, I'm just tired. I don't have a temper, people are stupid. Like that's the masking, the high grass. This is what the New Testament book of Romans calls exchanging a truth for a lie. This is sin domineering us when we get to that point. God's very warning is if you lose that battle, it'll be devastating. Look what happens, Cain loses. Verse eight, Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, this is heartbreaking, they're talking. They're just brothers talking. And I don't know if Abel turns his back. I don't know if it happens right in front of him. I don't know if he bends over to pick up something off the ground. But like a lurking tiger, so Cain was to Abel. Cain rose up against his brother and he killed him. Here you have the first death in human history. Depending on how you interpret Genesis, but nobody has died before this. And it's interesting to think, how did Cain know what would happen if I take this blade and I put it in that man? How did Cain know what would happen if I take this boulder and I put it on top of that skull? The only thing recorded in Abel's life is his birth, his faith-filled offering, and his death. That's all we got. He's regarded by Jesus Christ as a first prophet, but get this, Jesus talks about Abel, but get this, he's considered the first prophet, and we don't have a single word in the entire Bible of, of, of saying that Abel even spoke once. Abel didn't say a word the entire Bible, and he's considered the very first prophet. Look at Jesus' word about, about Abel in Luke 11. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of who? Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. It's the blood of Abel, which spilt upon the ground, which speaks, not his lips. 4.10 of Genesis says, and the Lord said to him, what have you done? Oh, Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Straight horror movie status. Cain is tilling the very ground that is crying out to God. His brother's blood is fertilizing his garden. It's heavy, it's dark. And God goes, what have you done? And notice the verb rendered crying in your verse. It didn't say cried out. Abel is presently crying. This is present tense. It suggests in some sense that Abel's influence in crying is reverberating across the centuries of biblical history to now, to this room, to this day. This is a dead man's sermon. It makes me think of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. He was, as all of you know, assassinated on April 4th when an assassin... uh, James Earl Ray stepped up to kill him, shot him, 
And I read very graphically this past week about how the bullet went to his body, and it is graphic. But obviously, King Jr. did an extreme amount of good fighting for civil rights, but it was his murder and his blood and his death which still, still, still cries out today. Abel's talking blood has the same effect. The question is, what is it saying? What is Abel's blood saying? Well, every commentator and their mother has an opinion. <laughs> like, no joke. Every single commentator says, he's saying this, he's saying this, he's saying this. And yes, it preaches about vengeance and justice and faith and worship and sin. But ultimately what Abel's blood cries out for is conviction. It's conviction. And church, it's right here where I find my warranted certainty in this moment. This is where I find my reason to offer everything I got to God. You see, to truly answer the question, is God unfair? There are, the answer is a resounding yes. God is unfair. God is not fair. God is unfair by all of our standards. He forsook the only truly innocent Abel, his son, Jesus Christ, and welcomed in nothing but Cain's. I don't know of you, but that is, to me, probably the most unfair act in all of history. Hebrews 12, 24 says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Where Abel's blood convicts the sinner, Christ's blood sets free the sinner. That's a better word. Where Abel's blood cries out conviction, Jesus' blood cries out innocent. I love that. If you notice this, where it kind of kicks off in Genesis chapter 4, it's like this super highway of, of how to defeat and have power over any crouching tigers or hidden dragons. Look at this. Here is the lamb, the first lamb, Abel's lamb, one lamb for one man. Later on the Passover, one lamb for one family. Then in the day of atonement, one lamb for one nation. And finally at Christ's cross, one lamb for the entire world. This is a potent gospel of grace to deal with a potent, potent sin. And if we truly believe this collective church, if we were secure in his love and if we cared about taking our spiritual responsibilities seriously enough, and if we had warranted certainty and we accepted his unfair grace, then we would be a community pining to be brother keepers, sister keepers. So when God says, where's Wally? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Yes, we are. Essentially, we'd be a community of Abel's. I know that's elementary and basic and almost cheesy, but my prayer for our church is that we'd be a community of Abel's. Meaning God doesn't let our life go. When God, excuse me, when God doesn't let our life go the way we think it all should go, or when we think that God is not blessing us, but prospering them and you and you and you, and oh, they're prospering, Cain's respond with exploit them. Cain's respond with condemn them. Cain's respond with elbowing each other and downplaying and criticizing their success. But a community of Abel types Faith-filled delights in another person's goodness. Faithful people rejoice when they get something that we don't. Hear me out. What if today, what if today we responded in worship, not just for what God has done us, for us individually, which is beautiful, but what if we praise in songs and in prayers and in reflection by actually taking the time today to rejoice in others' growths 
and others' favor and others' well-being. I couldn't tell you the last time I sang a song thinking, oh God, let me worship for what you're doing in Brian's life and forgive me for that. What if we took the time to go up to the people on the sides between these trees and over there up in front of that shelf thing? What if we took the time to not only pray for our daily issues, but to go up there and say, I just want to pray for one another as well, for their favor. Giving praise that she is getting married. Getting pray, offering praise and prayer that they got the job I wanted. Offering praise and prayer that they're pregnant and I'm not. Offering praise and prayer for their circumstances. And if this, hear me out, sounds ugh, terrible, then guess what? You have found your crouching tiger. You have found your sin. If you go, I can't pray for that. There's the lurking lion. And if that is undealt with today, lurking lions, crouching tigers, you know, hungry wolves, if that is undealt with today, whatever it may be, do not think it will go away. Sin never goes down and never digresses and never fizzles. It eventually devours. And not just you, but your community, us, me, my family will suffer for it as well. And if you don't believe me, Ask Abel. Our sins affect one another. Our undealt with sins affect one another. So then, the biggest, sharpest weapons against coiled lions? Worship. Worship. That is the sharpest weapon we've got. True, abled, inspired worship is the antidote to sin lurking out the door. Cain got to the point because, he got to the point he did because worship in his life started to suffer. The choice is ours, collective church, just like it was for Cain, on how we decide to offer, how we decide to worship, and how we decide to live by faith. Today, let us show God his value by giving him our best, as he gave us, not an offering of an angel, a machine, or a surrogate, but the absolute very best offering that he had, which was himself. Amen? Pray with me.